Welcome to this week's Launchport podcast. In this interview, Michael Beloff QC, described by Legal 500 as the godfather of sports law, talks to Launchport CEO Sean Cottrell about his career in sports law and shares his views on a range of sports law matters. This is a fascinating interview with one of the great minds in sports law, and we have split the interview into two parts. In part one, Michael discusses his career, the role of lawyers in sport, the use of legal experts to investigate corruption in sport, and the role of bodies such as the World Anti-Doping Agency and the Court of Arbitration for Sport, and how he came to appoint Sir Anthony Hooper, the former Court of Appeal judge, to conduct the IAAF independent investigation. In part two, Michael discusses the potential for a collective of legal experts to help governing bodies to investigate corruption in sport, athlete representation on sports arbitration panels and sports boards, the changing role of lawyers in international sport, the one thing he would like for every sports governing body to implement, the future of good governance of sport, and the need for the rules, regulations, and disciplinary decisions of sports bodies to be publicly available. I hope you enjoy the show. So welcome to this Law and Sport podcast with me, Sean Cottrell, the founder and CEO of Law and Sport. I'm sitting in the offices of Blackstone Chambers with a very distinguished sports lawyer, Michael Beloff QC. He probably doesn't need an introduction, and if you have the time, you can set aside the afternoon, um, you could have a look at his CV on the uh, Blackstone website, which we'll put a link to. Um, Michael, thank you so much for taking the time out of your schedule to have this interview with me. Um, you've had an extremely distinguished career, um, and I'm sure it's going to continue uh, that way uh, for a number of years yet. Um, I wonder, we now talk about sports law um, quite openly and it's something that I would say that is now recognised globally as a, as, a, as a distinct area of law. Can you give us some background of when you came to the bar, how you got into sports law and was there such a thing as sports law in the first place and what, what, how that's developed over the years? When I went up to University at Oxford, um, I was a reasonably proficient schoolboy sprinter and I had ambitions to get into the uh, Blues team. And the first night, um, I went to see the captain of college athletics and there was another guy sitting next to me on the sofa who also came for the same purpose. And we exchanged our times and his times were so much superior to mine that I thought... Well, this is this college level. God knows what university level must be like. And so I gave up um, that ambition and I took up politics instead. Now, the punchline is that this guy was Adrian Metcalf, who was in 1963 the best 400-metre runner in the world and would certainly have been the Olympic gold medalist had the Olympics been in 63, not 64. As it was, he was a silver medalist in the relay and had a distinguished athletics career. A few years later, when I'd just been called to the bar, uh, Adrian, who had formed the first ever pressure group for athletes called the International Athletes Club, uh, telephoned me and said they had a problem because the Amateur Athletic Association had sold all rights to meetings to the BBC. And in fact, um, the International Athletes Club 
had joined with Coca-Cola and ITV to put on what was effectively the first of the athletic spectaculars, where you didn't have national or city teams competing against each other. You just invited athletes from all over the world uh, to perform. So there was this collision. Uh, did the AA able to override the um, IAC's rights? He came to see me. Um, I gave some advice. In the end, we weren't able. I, th- I think Sorry, I can't remember whether we were or were not able to abstract that particular meeting from that. But as a result of that, this was the first sports law case I did. My clerks in uh, chambers, uh, simply whenever any other sports issue came up, ah, Mr. Belloff, you know, he's your man. And of course, once one had started doing it, I got really a head start. And that's probably one of the reasons when I was rather flatteringly described in a standard textbook on sports law as one of the founding fathers of sports law, certainly in this country. I would, I would definitely agree with that. And I think, you know, um, as someone who, when I got into sports law, one of the first things I did was pick up your textbook. <laughs> as, as, and I, I say this to, to other um, scholars and other people who... Uh, uh, who have been involved in sports law for so long? I think that one of the, the, the things that can be that we can be guilty of as a sort of younger generation who are involved in sports law is to think that all of these concepts, and this is one of the things I'm obsessed with, this genealogy of content, mm-hmm. is for this reason: is that we can think that oh, this scenario is just a new scenario, and so I think that, that speaking to people like yourself who have who have you know seen these some of these issues arise, come and go over the years, is so important, and to recognise that. Can I just intervene and yeah. say it was not my own book on sports law, which I would describe <laughs> as one of the founding fathers of sports law, just to clarify. <laughs> yeah, maybe I'll publish a book and yeah. claim, take, that, take that claim. Um, so that was some years ago, over, yeah. over the years. So, so that's when you were, um, you know, you've gone from essentially representing sports clients and then you've transitioned, um, but obviously there's a, there's a big gap there with all the clients that you, you've, you've represented. And then you've moved into sitting as a, an adjudicator mm-hmm. for sports disciplinary disputes for a whole host of different yeah, bodies, yeah. including the Court of Arbitration for Sport. Can you talk about that transition? Yes. Um, my real passion in life um, is track and field. And uh, I've been following the sport since I was about six years old, which I I won't tell you how many years that means I've been following it. And it was um, in, of course, the 1970s and 1980s, it was still officially an amateur sport. But there did become issues in which um, athletes of distinction actually did want to be paid. So there was a bit of a kind of back black, um, brown envelope behind the stadium and one or two of them got into some disciplinary trouble and I um, in fact um, advised them in relation to this there was at least one Olympic gold medalist I also for example advised the uh, British team as to whether or not Mrs Thatcher's ban on British athletes competing in the Moscow Olympics was or was not valid as you know they competed we had the famous co-ovet collisions there so it was really through athletics I mean I had other sports of course that I got into as a result I represented John Conte was then world uh, uh, light heavyweight boxing champion, uh, advised Stefan Edberg, was then Wimbledon champion, and so on and so forth. So I developed this sort of portfolio um, of sport, and then by pure chance again, and so much in uh, one's life happens in chance, 
A friend of mine, David Dixon, who was a former international hurdler and senior partner with us, the private clown firm, as was mainly known in those days, uh, was also uh, chairman of the Commonwealth Games Federation. They had issues about boycotts and the like and so on. I advised on those. And then one day he rang me up and he said, Michael, would you like to be a member of the Court of Arbitration for Sport? And I'd never actually heard of this body at that time. Mind you, it had only been in existence for a few years. And I said, well, it sounds fun. And he said, well, I'll put you forward. So he put me forward. Lo and behold, um, I was appointed. And then immediately, this is what's so extraordinary, immediately I was appointed to the first of the ad hoc panels that they'd had at an Olympic Games in Atlanta in 1996, which was a great privilege and as a result, I've now been in five ad hoc panels at Olympics and three at Commonwealth Games, which I say rather um, vainly and boastfully is in fact a considerable record. I mean, far more than any other person internationally in the field. So that's how I got into it. And then the other adjudicative functions tended to be a spin-off as a result of that. Um, I remember that... Um, there was an inquiry when uh, Hugh Griffiths, Lord Griffiths, as was the only person I think who's been both a uh, played um, he, he played cricket for Glamorgan. He was also a uh, very distinguished golfer. So he was both president of the MCC and the Royal and Ancient at different times, and a law lord. Um, he retired from being chairman of the International Cricket Council's Code of Conduct Commission, and I was invited to put myself forward, and I had an interview with uh, Lord McLaurin, who was in charge of Tesco. Anyhow, fortunately, I got appointed to that body in about, I can't remember, the first decade of this century, so um, that's an, another one. And then, as I say, it mushroomed. There was sort of adhesion process. And then finally, of course, when the IAF established for the first time the Ethics uh, Commission, uh, through the um, influence, I think, of Sebastian Coe and one or two other friends of mine, American and Canadian lawyers, uh, they persuaded the then President Diak not only to set up this commission, which, with the benefit of hindsight, from his personal point of view, he might have been unwise <laughs> to do, but also to have me appointed chairman. So those are probably the two major ones, but then, as I say, I mean, it have been the FIA and... Uh, the um, World Iron Man, and recently, I mean literally within the last fortnight, I've been appointed the, uh, to, to the panel for Ultimate Fighting Championship, and I'm presiding over the first um, appeal in, in that particular context in Los Angeles in about a week's time. And it's, it's, it's incredible listening to you talk and think about it, and I was aware um, of your appointment for the UFC panel, and I can remember looking at cassettes, like tapes of UFC. When I was younger, I'm, I'm, I'm a former amateur boxer, did a bit of MMA. I know I wasn't very good, so I stopped. Um, but no, I, was, I wasn't bad. Um, I gave it a good go anyway, let's put it that way. And I remember looking at UFC just thinking, it's unbelievable that it was able to be sanctioned or, or approved in those days, because you had, um, at the start of it, you literally had very small men against huge, like some of the world's biggest athletes. Competing now to look, looking at it now, and they've now got USADA doing their testing yes. and how it's professionalised. It's just incredible that acceleration of, and I guess you could say the same in athletics of how it's how it's professionalised. How much has that 
either taken you by surprise or um, what do you think, would you see it as an inevitable consequence? No, far from taking me by surprise, I remember speaking to my instructing solicitor in these cases in the 70s and 80s. I think I actually recommended him for these matters concerned with athletes. And I kept on saying to him, watch this. This is going to become a professional sport. It didn't actually require particular gifts of prophecy. After all, the same transition had taken place in tennis in the 1960s. And there was actually no reason at all why uh, athletes shouldn't be paid. Of course, now they're paid phenomenal. I mean, someone like Usain Bolt is probably one of the 30th richest sports people in the world. Um, so yes, there it was. And I, I said, get in on the back of this. I, to, extent, to an extent, I think he probably did. But <laughs> other people then <laughs> spotted the opportunity and um, muscled their way in as well. And how has that professionalism changed the dynamic of the disputes and the skill set required to hear those disputes? Well, first of all, it's, it's self-responsible for the fact that there are disputes. I mean, take, for example, um, a footballer. Well, in the old days, all right, um, he uh, committed some on-field offence and he would be banned for a couple of matches and everyone said, well, fine. Well, these days, if the guy, if the club, after all, because usually they don't dock the um, footballer's salary in any way, they wouldn't dare to. If the club then has invested £50 million uh, in some particular footballer and they're off for a couple of weeks and he's probably, if it's a £50 million footballer, he's probably a pretty good footballer as well. Obviously, they're going to challenge uh, any disciplinary sanction that's imposed on them if they possibly can. Uh, And in the uh, last year, I advised both in a case of a well-known Premier League footballer, Diego Costa, and an even more celebrated international uh, rugby um, star, George Smith, one of the great all-time All Blacks, in cases where exactly so, it was very, very important to them to be able, if possible, to play in the next two matches or whatever it was. And this is just merely a fragment. There are other people doing this, no doubt, the whole time. And... What would you say is, is it your, obviously you're a distinguished lawyer in your own right outside of, if, you, if we took the, the um, sports element outside, and something that, you know, we get a lot of requests about, it's like, how do I get into to sitting on a panel, whether it's for the FA or for the RFU or for CAS, and I always ask this to, to, particularly to CAS arbitrators, what are the skill sets that you think are required for being a good arbitrator or a good panel member? Well, for CAS, um, they uh, require, obviously, uh, legal knowledge and preferably an interest in sport. And actually, as I've got to know my colleagues on CAS over the years, I've found that more and more of them actually were distinguished sportsmen in their youth, and they've simply moved into law. And indeed, often, their legal practices are not exclusively in the field of sports. I was sitting uh, last week uh, with a Swiss uh, lawyer who had actually played international footballer, but actually his speciality is mergers and acquisitions. And as you rightly say, until very recently, although I had not a monopoly, but a fairly substantial chunk of the sports law that was going, I wouldn't have described myself as being primarily a sports lawyer. I mean, I used to be a, a 
commercial law. I did all kinds of commercial cases, media law, public and constitutional law, human rights, European Union law, I mean the whole lot. Um, and sports law is just something that I've developed. And of course, as I get older and older, I spend more time now. I've delivered, I've developed a, a feeling for and an interest in adjudication uh, that I didn't have when I was younger. I mean, I had the opportunity of being on the High Court bench, what, two, two, 25 years ago or so. I just didn't want to do that then. Now, um, I've done so much advocacy in so many jurisdictions, in so many different fields, that very little there would actually be new for me, and I actually find it actually quite interesting now simply to adjudicate upon cases and try to develop um, sports law as a as a independent discipline. Um, can I just um, just add something? I was. Um, when I was still allowed, I mean, as you know, CAS doesn't allow you to act both as an advocate and be a CAS arbitrator. I mean, they're very, very sensitive, and it's been more sensitive now in international arbitration anyhow about possible conflicts of interest and the perception of independence, etc., etc. One of the major cases that I was able to argue um, at a time when there wasn't that inhibition was a case um, it, which involved double ownership of two clubs who were playing in European uh, competitions. One was uh, AEK Athens, and I forget the other may have been Tottenham Hotspur. Anyhow, um, a, 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 an issue arose as to whether or not it was appropriate that someone should be able to own two clubs uh, in a similar competition. And that was the first time in which the panel uh, who sat on this uh, did the most elaborate and very significant judgment, but they did refer to this concept of the lex sportiva or lex ludica. That is to say, a set of principles that were freestanding of regulations, domestic law, etc., etc., and in certain circumstances could actually trump and override them. And it was on the base of that that I became actually quite interested now in this particular concept, and I gave a a lecture in Hamburg at the Max Planck Institute um, under the auspices of Reiner Zimmermann, who's one of the most distinguished comparative lawyers in the world and who was quite interested in this notion. So that whenever I get a chance, I don't say I distort my judgments or my colleagues' judgments, if I get a chance to lobby in a reference the Lex Mortiva, I tend to do so. And it's interesting because at the moment, Cass in particular with the Petstein case and yeah. so forth, has come up for huge amounts of criticism. And obviously they're looking at that particular case, they was looking at something that was a, a long time in the past and there's been various reforms, but then there's people on the, um, like Brendan Schwab, who we've interviewed and um, spoke at our conference, who represents uh, Uni World Athletes and was FIFA, FIFA Pro Rep, um, you know, argues that um, you know, there's not enough athlete involvement and that there's fundamentally in sports disputes and, and that, you know, he's very into collective bargaining and, and that type of approach. But when you speak to people, and I know Brenda's just did a good interview with Tracy Holmes on this, um, in which she describes this, when you when you get to international sport, and one of the interesting dynamics of sport is the fact that it is international and the fact that there's this, the players move across ownership changes, etc. And so in order to, and I think this is one of the 
I'm not sure what your take on this, but I think one of the successes of Wilder, and again, kind of a huge amount of criticism, one of the successes is managed to get something where so many um, disparate groups actually agree to, even if they're not fully happy with it, agree to some set of principles, which is quite incredible, I think, when you, if you looked at it and said, right, you're going to get... I know there's been issues obviously with Russia, but you're going to get the Russians, the French, the Americans, everyone to agree to these set of principles. Quite, quite incredible. Um, do you think, you know, from my perspective, I would see that as one of the, the benefits of having sports law, having this consistent body? Um, because in theory, otherwise you, you're going to allow people in their own jurisdictions to, to adjudicate on a particular issue, which, say for example, in the Russian case, would have been disastrous. Yes, I mean, I think it's to the great credit of Dick Pound, who was the moving force between the creation of the World Anti-Doping Code and was the first chairman of WADA, that he was able, in fact, to persuade, as you rightly say, virtually all countries and virtually all sports to subscribe to what is, in fact, a global regulation. The problem, of course, has come with enforcement and detection and the like, but that in no way undermines the value of having a coherent set of principles. And one of the matters, I think, under discussion uh, in the sports law world is whether an equivalent body ought not to be set up to deal with the second major vice, indeed some might say it's the first major vice now in international sport, which is corruption. Mm. On that point, um, I had the pleasure of interviewing Stanton Hooper, who again spoke, who is a fantastic individual. Um, you appointed, or yes, the I panel did. of the year, you appointed him. Yes. Uh, so I commend you for that. I think it's. Yeah. Thank you very much. Now you look at you look at the outcomes and, you, and and the quality of his report, which I think that is often overlooked. Actually, which I I, I lobby people to, to to bother to take the time to read because I think it's an, an impressive investigatory report um, and it's structured and presented in a way that is digestible, um, informative, and accurate. Importantly. Um, on that point, what, what made you choose Anthony Hooper, who really didn't have anything? Obviously, he was an appeal. It was a court of appeal judge, but he didn't have any involvement in sports. So I'd be uh, I'd really like to know why you picked him. I'll tell you, Sean. It's quite interesting how many people, in particular retired judges, um, come up, because they know I'm involved in international sports law and adjudication, come up to me and say, you know, would there ever be any possibility of my joining whatever body it is and so on. And I seem to recollect Tony Hooper as an old friend was, was one of those. And when I became chairman um, of the Ethics Commission, we had what was, as it were, our first case, something of extreme significance. I mean, it's, it's hard to think of a more... Um, important case when one of the senior officials, the son of the then president, and persons from a major jurisdiction in athletic and other terms, Russia, were all uh, alleged to be involved in a process of extortion and bribery, etc., etc., and um, I had, as it were, given to me these procedure rules which uh, required uh, the matter to be investigated and indeed it's very hard to see how it could have been dealt with other than by investigation before one ever had any disciplinary proceedings. So I thought I'd aim for the top and I said to um, Tony Hooper, I said, you know, this is not going to be a very remunerative exercise but it'll no doubt be a very interesting one and I thought it 
very important for the credibility of the exercise that we should be able to point to this and say, this was the senior English appellate criminal specialist um, who was carrying this out. And so whatever you may say about him, you're not going to be able to say he's not competent, you're not going to be able to say he's not independent. You'll have to, as it were, find, if you want to find, some other way of criticising him, which, of course, uh, they didn't find easy to do. And, of course, off the back of his uh, report, um, I chaired the first panel, and again, we, uh, making use of his report um, and having his assistance at the hearing as well, simply to um, any issues that had to come up which we needed elaboration, we produced what I hope was um, a coherent um, adjudication. I think it's... Uh, I'm, I'm pleased to hear you say this, and I think it's... Uh, I'm not sure what your view on it is, but it seems to me that that... Given the complexity of sport, and, uh, and as, as, as Anthony Ortoni, as you say, would describe it, you know, the um, type of individuals who now participate in investing and who have got some relationship to sport, who are manipulating or otherwise, and the growing internationalisation and complexity of the whole structure of sport, it would seem to me reasonable that you should be, that particularly international federations, should be looking to people like Sir Anthony Hooper to do these investigations because of their experience. I love this term, he used this term, he's an expert at marshalling facts. Yeah. And I thought it was such a lovely lovely way to describe it. Um, and I think it was incredible that he sat, uh, he, didn't, he didn't go anywhere to sat. He's, when I, say, I was saying this to someone at the Basel conference that we were at the British Association of Sport and Wine conference. So it's quite incredible to think that he managed to get, get all this information from people without actually going anywhere, we're just sending emails, which in itself is... Um, impressive. And do you think? Do you think then this is going to be the future, where you have to have these independent? It was very impressive, and of course, it was a major cost-saving exercise as well. <laughs> though I think he might have been unwise to go to Russia, and I very much doubt he'd have had made cooperation if he had. But I mean, I, I've been very lucky because um, I got to know a great many people in the world of sports law. And, for example, the second major inquiry, which is still going on, although there's been publicity about everyone knows it's going on, is into Kenyan athletics. And I had a friend of mine who was... um, also, he was originally Director of Public Prosecutions in Kenya. He's a long-standing member of the Court of Arbitration for Sport. He was Secretary General of the Commonwealth Games Federation. Um, and um, I, therefore, again said to him, do me a favour, you're not going to be paid very much. I need someone of real calibre to do this. And the other ones who I've appointed have all been of that kind of calibre. Now, whether or not these international bodies are prepared to pay the price for that kind of level of investigation, you know, will FIFA, um, will other bodies of that kind, and and that's not entirely clear. I've been, as I say, lucky. Mm -hmm. Um, If if someone, I suspect, had come to these people out of the blue and said, are you prepared to do this at X dollars a day or something, they might have said, you know, go away, I've got better things to do. I can either sit and admire the view from my house or... Surely it would make sense that there is a certain budget, and this is the argument they say with Wada or sponsors, mm. and sponsors would argue, I think it's quite a coherent argument for sponsors, they say, mm. we give you this money, we, we give you loads of money, you yeah. should carve out a portion of that. I know, this is, this, is, this is true. I mean, somehow, there's got to be more money put into this. You cannot 
deal with doping, you cannot deal with corruption on the cheap. Otherwise, you're simply not going to get anywhere. And of course, we do have this problem that I think is underappreciated, especially in the media, but we now constantly remind them that we don't have the coercive powers that are available to the police or indeed to the courts. Therefore, we rely upon cooperation and whistleblowers, and neither of the two can be guaranteed. And do you think that part of this is interesting, because I deal with a lot mm. of aspiring, I deal with a lot of sports lawyers, but a lot mm. of aspiring sports lawyers, and even, as, as you said, you were one of the, or if not the, but one of the leading sports lawyers in the world, and that was only part of your practice mm. at the time. I know that things have moved on, there's some more specialists now. Um, do you think that sometimes, because people see the high numbers, I, I say I liken the sports sector to a shard, yeah. in the sense that there's a few people at the top who've got mm. lots of money, and the reality being that whilst there's a, maybe a good sum of money, it's not huge sums of money. And some of these governing bodies, they're, if you look at their stakeholders who are all inputting and wanting some involvement, it's quite a diverse range of people that they have to try and deal with. Now, not to say that the governance standards couldn't be improved, I think, over here we're doing a, a relatively good job of trying to move that forward with this new sports governance code. But with that, um, with that shard-like structure, it actually astonishes me that the, the IWF, you, know, had to, you, you had to call on favours, which shows you some of the, the, the problems with this perceived professionalisation of sport. And I'd argue that we're not quite there yet in terms of across the board in terms of the governance, as most things have moved to a professional type structure where people are remunerated, the, it seems to me that there's still a lot of improvement about how um, sport is developed and how you get all of the bodies to actually agree to um, further funding. And yeah, yeah I would, I, if I may, just tell a little anecdote about Sir Anthony and this, which is quite revealing. Um, when I... Um, I had negotiated with uh, President Diak the hourly rate uh, for uh, investigator. And um, in fact, uh, it had, because the IF operates in dollars for whatever reason, perfectly legitimate exercise, they operate in dollars. When I um, got in touch with Tony Hooper, I had forgotten this and I put it to him as X pounds per something. And then I realised there was a mistake. And this is a story to President Diak's credit. Uh, there's enough alleged to his discredit <laughs> to just balance this out. I wrote to him and I said, look, I am hugely embarrassed about this and so on. But um, do you think you could possibly adjust this? And he wrote back and said, look, I understand the position you're in. Yes, you can go ahead and you can say he can tap it in pounds. <laughs> So there we are. But the quality, I'm just coming back, I mean, the other, um, one of the major adjudications I gave, of course, were the three Pakistani cricketers, mm. these spot-fixing lords. Now, again, we've got quite an interesting group of people um, who've been appointed, as it were, eligible for the panel. But I decided, again, that I really wanted to go for the top. And one of the people, we had two, myself chairing, uh, Sharad Rao, who's the one I've used to investigate uh, the Kenyan um, alleged corruption for the IAF. And the other was Albie Sachs, who, of course, is a very famous figure in the struggle in anti-apartheid. He lost an arm when he was uh, blown up by, um, by some... 
person who disagreed with his views and became a member of the first constitutional court in South Africa. So having these three words, putting myself on one side, really, again, gave a kind of armour of credibility. It would be impossible for someone to say these people can be suborned, they're not independent, they're not efficient, and so on and so forth. And again, I mean, the you know the decision survived. It was actually challenged in cast. They rejected the challenge. Sadly, that's all we have time for for this show. I hope you enjoyed the show. Remember, for all your latest sports law updates and information, you can go to lawandsport.com or follow us on Twitter at lawandsport. Go to our YouTube channel, follow us on iTunes or SoundCloud. You can also go to our website to sign up for our weekly email. Thanks again for tuning in.